0: This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Jason Duterman. Jason is a husband and father and works as the Director of Innovation Design at the OSV Institute. His work focuses on helping parishes and dioceses innovate their processes and programs of ministry. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Jason discuss fitness, diet, holistic living, and how the body and spirituality interact in faith. They explore how married couples can express the one flesh element of their marriage in daily life and how to grow in and spread joy by this mystery. Jason also discusses Catholic design thinking and how it's revolutionizing the church today. So, Catholic design thinking is the art and practice of observing with empathy something, a problem that you have within an organization, be that a parish or a diocese or a nonprofit, maybe even a for-profit business, and then designing a solution based off Mm. of the feedback you've received through empathetic listening. It's an art and it's something that has to be practiced on the regular. This is Living the Call. Jason Duterman,
1: welcome to the show.
0: So good to be here, Deacon Charlie. Thanks for having me.
1: Looking forward to it, man. We were just rapping a little bit about... uh... About the origins of Dr. Pepper, strangely enough. Yes, I um, and And you asked me if I was a soda person. And I, I'm not in terms of, uh, you know, drinking soda regularly. I do enjoy it every now and again. But when I do drink, uh, it is, you know, I do prefer Dr. Pepper. And you were, uh, you actually knew the name of the town where Dr. Pepper was born that I had
0: forgotten. Dublin, Texas. Dublin, Texas. Little town, right? It's like 3,000 people or 4,000 people. right. And they make it yeah. with cane sugar, which makes it so much more addicting and delicious than the normal stuff. But if you had to drink,
1: because I know you're kind of a fitness guy, right. as, as I am, but if you if you had to, like, I guess, where are you on the whole sugar versus uh, high fructose corn syrup, uh, you know, debate?
0: If I've got to have something, I'd rather have sugar. I, I mean, at the end of the day, soda is just terrible for you regardless. <laughs> but if I had to have it, it'd probably be something with cane sugar.
1: It's amazing how sugar has figured out its way into everything though, or, or, or or fructose or glucose or some variation of sugar. It's kind of in everything, literally, if you just turn over the product, you know, container and look in the back, there's going to be some element of it.
0: Well, and unless you're consciously looking for a way to cut that out and you're being very intentional about the foods that you buy or the, the drinks that you consume, whatever it might be, you might find yourself consuming way more sugar than you should in the first place. I've gotten to a for point where sure. I go to a grocery store or my wife knows if, you know, if she's at the grocery store and she's buying things that I'm going to eat, I have to keep that stuff to a minimum.
1: Did, did that happen for you? Is, have you always been that way? Or is that something more recent?
0: Uh, the last decade, I made a conscious mm. decision. Um, I got more into fitness. So I'm a, I'm a guy who's in my gym two hours every day. I'm a CrossFitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm lifting weights and yeah. doing high inter- intensity interval training you can do all of that and if you don't couple that with a really good nutrition plan that meets your body type if you're not looking at your macros in the right way so your proteins your fats your carbohydrates you're never going to achieve the level that you want to achieve within your body uh, so i started following that tracking that a year or uh, 10 years ago a decade ago
1: I really love the idea of functional fitness. I had Roxy Beckles on the show a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you if you know her I think I may have mentioned her to you at some point but um she's a former miss Olympia um and um you know so she was a professional uh you know bodybuilding in this case not functional but mm. bodybuilding athlete and um and we got into like you know the whole fitness topic and the whole conversation and and the idea of the diet with the fitness is I, I mean the diet is like 75% of this thing. I, I, you know, if you work out every single day and when I used to go to the gym, I don't anymore. I have a gym in my, in, in my house now, like in my backyard, kind of an open air gym because I live in LA and you can do that kind of thing. But, um, so jealous when I, yeah, it's actually, I built it in COVID. It's actually pretty cool how it worked out. Cause I, I did it as a accommodation, but then it ended up like, I can never imagine working out inside anymore. But, um, when I was talking to her about this, you know, I, I was thinking about my experiences in gyms, like going into public, you know, you're in like a big room with like, f- f- you know, 80 other people sweating and grinding on whatever it is. And a lot of those guys, you'd see them week after in week after week after week after week. I mean, just bust in their hump working out. And yet, you know, you th- there wasn't that much transformation, not a lot of gains And my instant thought was, well, they're just not eating right because I mean, then they're, they're doing what they need to do, you know, on the fitness side, they're burning the calories, but either, either they, either they're still ingesting more than they're expending or they have their macros kind of out of whack, like you just said. And people don't know that, right? They don't know that there's a mix for like different body types. I don't know that I've ever gotten that right.
0: Yeah. I follow an incredible nutrition program called Renaissance periodization, and it's really interesting with eating as well because, frankly, you can eat whatever you want as mm-hmm. long as you're eating within – now, granted, that should be healthy, right? Uh, so, that's sort of, I suppose, the disclaimer. If you're, if you're eating mm. cookies every day, you're probably not going to hit the goals that you want to hit. So, clean proteins, clean fats, clean carbohydrates, you know, whole grains, those are, that's really important most of the time outside of maybe a few cheat meals. But mm. I, I follow this program that that really gets you to a point to recognize, hey, if, you're, if you have a hankering for pasta, let's say you want Italian food, you can, as long as you eat within what your goal is. So if you're trying to be in a caloric deficit so that you lose weight, you're on a cut, you, mm. you only have so many carbohydrates that you can eat in a meal. Whereas if you're trying to gain muscle, which by the way, you also have to recognize you're going to gain a little bit of fat in that process as well you have sure. to be above what your normal caloric intake would be or you're never going to put on muscle mass so yeah being very aware of what your goals are and then following a plan that's that's going to allow you to see you know what it is what what you're trying to achieve well
1: do you have um in 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 crossfit and i think most people know what crossfit is but just in case crossfit is kind of a is a is a branded version of what sometimes is called either high interval training or functional fitness right so it's basically Doing the kind of uh, it's it's using weight, so it's weightlifting, but it's doing it uh, the kind of exercises that are natural to the body. Right. So there's not going to be things like curling or tricep extensions, but there will be things like squatting and deadlifting and, you know, snatching and, cur- and that kind of stuff. But when you do that, do you have like a, a thing you look forward to and a thing that you dread? What's your What's your confidence move and what's your confidence, what's your dread, Gosh, I guess, in, 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 in CrossFit?
0: I love that question. And it's so funny. It changes depending on what's going on with my body at any given time. Right now, I love squats. If you would have asked me that uh, six months ago, I would have told you leg day was something I dread. And I'm a guy that when I started doing CrossFit, Uh, the, the friend of mine who trained me, uh, and, and taught me how to do everything the right way. Um, he would be a guy that would always say that the, the legs feed the wolf, right? If you skip Mm. leg day, you're never going to achieve your goals because a strong posterior chain is the, the basic that you want for everything else. I mean, truly the legs feed the wolf. So it would have been leg day, but if you ask me Mm. today, I am I hate shoulders. I am doing strict really? presses right now is just bumming me out uh, mm. because it's um, I'm I'm at a point in my training where uh, the the training itself is calling for higher reputation also at higher weight. Uh, mm. So it's just I'm torched at the Brutal. End a workout right now. Yeah.
1: It's brutal. Yeah, there's something. So
0: did you learn, did you uh, start uh, CrossFit in a box or did you start personal, like individually? Individually. And that's what I've always done. So like you, I've, I built out a a full home gym. So uh, I'm, again, I'm such a geek at it. You know, we all have our things that we love and we invest money in and and a gym was something I wanted to do. So I do, I've for, uh, for however many years, that's what I've been 10 years. That's what I've been doing. I got introduced to it kind of by
1: weird happenstance. Um, This was probably back in 2000, I want to say 18, maybe. Uh, I mean, I'd been like a gym rat for a lot of my life, just kind of, you know, but mostly around uh, athletics, right? So like uh, sports rather, uh, you know, football, that kind of thing. So I I knew my way around a gym, but it was very body part oriented, right? It wasn't a system um, unless I made it up. And then, um, I got, I pulled into this parking lot by my house one time and, uh, there was this like giant yellow sign that said CrossFit aviator. And I guess I had sort of heard of the CrossFit brand, but not, I wasn't, I knew it was something, I just didn't know what it was. And it was something about that sign that was just really interesting to me. So I walked up to it and I was like, what the heck is this thing? Shout out, by the way, to CrossFit Aviator, which is now defunct because of COVID. They shut mm. down. But um, but anyway, I walked up to it. It sucks. Yeah, because so they, it, it, it was such a great box. And by the way, box, again, for those maybe not, uh, you know, in this world, box is what you call a CrossFit gym just because it is frankly just a box. There's no mirrors. There's no nothing. It's just a, an open space. But um, I walked up to this sign and what I saw on the sign was something I'd never seen before. It was like, It had 5am, 6am, 7am, like all the way throughout the day. There was this big block in the middle of the day where it just didn't list anything. And then it was, you know, 4pm, 5pm, 6pm, 7pm, 8pm. And I I was like, well, is this like a class that you take? And then I walked in and I saw what was actually happening. And when I got into it, like I actually said, okay, I'll join for a month or whatever it was. And the part that fascinated me because I had this crazy nuts schedule. This was, you know, kind of, uh, I was still in the startup world and it was a whole thing. So the idea of like finding the time to go to the gym for me was one of those temptations never to work out. It was like, oh, it's too late. It's too early. I can't figure it out, whatever. But the fact that there was a, like literally a workout of the day, which is ab- abbreviated a wad, a workout of the day that started on the hour And you could walk in at, you know, 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. and be out at 8 p.m. and like everybody just shifts. And there's another thing that comes in. To me, there was like a magic about that idea, that concept. So it wasn't like this, you know, kind of futzing about in the gym and waiting for a machine or or, or like, I don't know what I'm going to work out today. Or it was and it was always something new. It was always something different. You never had the same workout of the day back to back. And and it was, to me, it was like such an amazing system. And I kind of fell in love with it based on that. It was only later that I found out the stuff that I was doing was very different than, you know, traditional kind of like, hey, shoulder day, leg day, whatever, because every workout of the day is just going to obliterate your whole core, your everything. Like it's almost leg day every day, you know, in a workout of the day in a way, right? right? And shoulder day every day and, you know, chest day every day. So uh, it, it was just fascinating. And I really fell in love with the idea of it. You know, CrossFit's had its ups and downs, you know, branding-wise over the last several years. But, but there was just something really magical for me about that kind of fitness regimen.
0: I I, I totally agree with you. It's uh, the training programming that I follow. Um, there's a guy by the name of Matt Frazier, who, within the CrossFit world, right. is sort of considered the you know he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time for sure. Um, it's Michelangelo and Michael
1: Jordan right. all at once, uh, <laughs> <It's>
0: like <laughs> without question. Uh, will he yeah. ever be unseated? Is is the question? But. He has a, an entire programming regimen that he uh, has branded hard work pays off. That's sort of his yeah. slogan. Yeah. Uh, and over the last couple of years has brought on a variety of really incredible athletes to develop different kinds of training. And so the training I'm following yeah. right now is actually a guy by the name of Matt Kearney. He's one of uh, the, the strongmen, the Arnold sort of, you know, Arnold sure. classic, classic, these big bodybuilding guys, uh, strongman competitions, you know, lifting the logs or the boulders. Guys um, are monsters they're, too. They're not just—they're not just like built. They're just massive people. Absolutely. I mean, it's incredible. I—I I watched a YouTube video, for example, one time of the number of calories these guys eat in a day. I mean, it's—it is thousands upon thousands of calories. Amazing. Um, mm. But the—the regimen that I'm following right now is strength based for probably anywhere from an hour and fifteen minutes to upwards of ninety minutes from. You know, hitting the main things like you might hit chest one day, you might hit shoulders one day, you might hit legs one day. But then after that hour and fifteen to hour and thirty, then you're also doing that twenty minute uh, metabolic conditioning, that workout of the day. So by the end, again, after two hours of stretch, hit it hard in the in the strength, go into the metcon, and then the metabolic conditioning, and then hit that stretch at the end. You're just like, oh, it's eight thirty. I gotta now. I gotta go work a full day. Here we go but you have all the energy you you need to do that. That's, and that's that's why I do it. That's why I do it.
1: That's the crazy, that's the the best part about it is like you're wiped out after a wad. Like I've said this before. In fact, I don't know if I talked to Roxy about this, the woman that I mentioned earlier, but after like a workout of the day, you you have this kind of thousand mile stare because like all the chemistry in your brain is just dialed, you know, and you're just, you just feel kind of placid and everything's good with the world. And if you don't have that, you kind of miss it. You know, if you miss a few workouts or whatever it is, you, maybe there's a little bit of shortness and how you might respond to certain things. You got a little bit less stamina for simple things like work and whatever. It's really amazing how that works. You know, the other thing about, you mentioned a guy like Fraser, when I, when I first, um, again, kind of got into it and started seeing, oh, it's not just a system, but there's athletes for this, right? Some, one of the things that blew me away about it was you, you see a guy like Matt Fraser, Matt Fraser's is probably what, five, six, seven. Right. He he weighs 185 pounds. Um, and, and with a shirt on, this dude looks like, I mean, if you saw this dude in the mall, you'd be like, oh, it's just a dude. You know, now when they, you know, when they take the shirt off, you can tell there's something going on. But it's the strength and power that they have, even in the package that they're in. Right. I was used to coming up as kind of like a gym rat, seeing these like, you know, bodybuilder types that are just, you know, huge biceps and traps and everything else but they couldn't hold a candle to these guys, to, to like these CrossFit athletes. And not just in terms of stamina, I'm talking about in terms of raw power and strength. A guy like Matt Fraser, I mean, he can clean, you know, maybe 300 pounds, you know, more than that, right? And squat, you know, in, in the in the five and 600 pound range for reps. I mean, it's crazy to me because it's so unassuming on the outside. And then when you watch what they do, It's just remarkable to me.
0: Right. Well, and I think what a lot of people don't know about a guy like Fraser is he comes from the Olympic lifting world. So he started as a lifter, got into CrossFit. I think if I remember correctly, it's on my list of things to read. He's got a book out that I I would love to consume here at some point, but um, I'm pretty sure he endured an an injury maybe, or maybe he got burned out, whatever it was, something brought him into, he stepped into a CrossFit box at an invitation and Mm. then- and then, you know, the rest is sort of history. But what a lot of people don't realize, I mean, I would encourage anyone, if you've never watched a CrossFit Games, uh, they're typically in August, turn it on just for 20 minutes uh, and, and watch it. Because what you see is, you, to your point, these guys have strength. They have power. These gals as well. I mean, uh, yep. the, the women Absolutely. of CrossFit lift two, three times what I'll probably ever lift in my life. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. But then on they're top of that, athletes. You, you layer in there the engine that's required. Again, oh, the, man. the, the breathing, uh, just that metabolic conditioning, the respiratory, uh, conditioning is, is something to behold. Well, I'm not sure if it's
1: in his book, but, uh, Fraser, I know initially when he came into the sport in 14, I want to say 14, maybe, or 13, mm-hmm. 14 or 13, he, he was real good because he had that foundation of Olympic weightlifting which some guys and gals have and others don't. That doesn't mean you you can't excel. You, you can, even if you haven't had that. But he did have that. So he had a really solid foundation. But in the in his first competitions at that level, he realized that he just didn't have an engine the way that these guys had an engine, right? So I, I, I don't know if it's in his book, but he talks about on one of the YouTube videos I saw that um, like he just started running and he would just run like for just gobs of miles because he he was trying to figure out how to get that engine built. And these are guys like one of the, one of the, uh, uh, you know, competitions or, or, you know, the events, I guess in the CrossFit games early in that time, cause they used to do it up in their original facility in Northern California right. was like basically doing a seven kilometer mile. I don't know if it was kilometer or mile, but it was like a run through the woods and it was like up mountains and all kinds of stuff. And so they would do that. And then they would also do like traditional Olympic, you know, lifting and other kind of jump ropes and all kinds of things. But to watch these guys in the in the California sun run up a mountain face, you know, and I mean at the same pace pretty much, you know, and they just – and when they get to the finish line, I mean it, it's like literally the expression leaving everything on the field. I mean – they can go to that kind of what they call that pain cave, right? They can go into that space that is just so ugly and dark and everything hurts and you can't breathe and they can withstand that, right? That's the thing I've, I've not been able to perfect. If I'm doing it with other people around me, that competitive factor helps a great deal because I'm going, Hey, Jason's doing it. Like I got to do it. Jason got another rep out. So like, I got to get another rep out, but solo, it's a little harder, but even in competitive settings that idea of being in that place of darkness and it does feel dark is just, you need something in, you know, between your ears too,
0: to like, you know, excel at this. Well, I'll tell you what, that's one of the reasons I also got into it was just the discipline that's required. And especially too, for somebody like me, who's, I'm in the gym in my own gym, two hours a day by myself, the competition I do, my best bud and I share our, our, uh, our our calorie goals on our Apple Watch, right? So every time I finish a workout, he gets a notification and vice versa, and we'll often compete. And that tends to be the, you know, the level of competition that I'm doing. But uh, there's also the mental game for me that says, hey, I'm a guy in uh, now going into my late 30s. And as I look at the rest of my life, I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and I've got one on the way. When my kids, like my daughter, for example, is an eight-year-old, already has a 24-inch, vertical. I mean, that girl can do box jumps with me. They're in the gym. They'll do burpees with me and they're six and eight, right? Yeah. How much more so than when they're in high school? And so for me, that mental game, having that measure of discipline, that's why I take care of my body. That's why I try to build strength because I want to be doing this. Not only do I want to live as long as, as the Lord allows, uh, you know, within, within that, but also at the same time, be able to keep up with my kids. Yeah. I'm really
1: happy that I found it at the age that I'm about 10 years older than you, but I found it at the age that I did. Although I would have, I really would have wanted to, to, to find it at around your age or maybe even earlier. Um, because you do build something over time and, and there is something which is true, which is muscle memory, right? You're the technique improves and technique makes a huge difference, you know? Uh, an exercise like deadlift, you know, for instance, my my max deadlift is, is uh, 415 pounds, but I'll see guys do, you know, a hundred more pounds that weigh 50 pounds less than I do. And the difference is just, it's, it's this precisioning of the technique that only gets better with repetition and kind of living that life. Right. And so it is very much about discipline, right? And of course, discipline and discipleship have a lot to do with each other. So there's great, great benefits in my life that I found in the spiritual life by virtue of having a, a, a you know, a regimented and a, uh, a challenging physical routine. I, I found it incredibly life-giving. And I feel that, you know, on the faith side of the equation, this is very new. So that's why I dig talking about it with people that are faith, you know, people of faith, because You know, there's, there's at some point, some people think that there's like this sort of, I don't even know how to define it, but there's, you know, if you're, if you're doing too much fitness, it's like a, and it can become a sense of idolatry. So let me, let me concede that there are people who can, you know, if you just like the way you look in the mirror and you're trying, like, I get that there are some dangers there, but there's dangers everywhere on the you know earthly life. But for the most part, I found it incredibly beneficial to my spiritual life, like incredibly so. And I just don't think that there's enough talking about this kind of stuff,
0: you know, in faith-based circles. I agree with you 100%. I'll tell you what, Deacon. So I used to, um, prior to what I, I do now in innovation work, I, I did youth ministry. The very beginning of my, of my professional life was youth ministry in a couple of different parishes, took that to the diocesan level. If I ever went back to a parish today and did youth ministry... I would, I would never do it the way I did it before. I would genuinely Ooh. want to partner with somebody who owned a gym, maybe owned a CrossFit box. I'd get 20 kids at that CrossFit box. We would do an hour workout, and then we'd sit down and we'd open the word of God and we'd discuss it or we'd talk about this topic Amen. or whatever. But but a way, and I think that's very John Paul II as well, right? Like St. John Paul II, I think, would say, heck yeah, let's let's figure out more ways to holistically look at. The way that God created us, and incorporate all of these different ways into the Catholic life, because at the mm. end of the day, you're going to grow more as a human in search of the divine. Uh,
1: it, it, to me, it's even biblical, right? And you think of Saint Paul and the way he talks about pummeling his body. Oh my gosh! Yes, and you know, it, it, and again, that thousand mile stare for me is this sort of moment of um, uh, kind of latency, this uh, refraction, actually, is what it's called. You know, post an intense workout where things are more vivid things are more clear not initially like you're if you're huffing and puffing and you're just dying and laying on the ground there's not much i don't you don't want to be around anybody you don't want any inputs you don't want any outputs you're just resting but like i don't know five minutes after that where you're like sitting and you're still perspiring and there's this like moment of latency that happens or or refractory period that happens where in my head, it's like a moment of absorption and seeing things in a new way, in a different way. And so, the idea in youth ministry of like going and doing that, and then sitting down and like doing Lexio Divina or you know, a hearing a, a you know expository preaching on some scripture. I mean, like that hasn't happened. But if it did, I I would think that I'm very receptive at that moment to something I maybe otherwise wouldn't have been because I've beat the crap out of myself and I've gotten rid of all the distractions. Like all that stuff is gone. It's like it's like your clear palette. You're dialed. Yep. You're dialed. You're dialed in. Yeah. I agree. So is anybody doing that? You should start
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. My wife and I had some conversations because now I just, I volunteer in my local parish. Uh, and I've thought, what would it look like? You know, I've done Bible studies with young people helped out, you know, sure. parish missions, things like that. But I've, I've wondered what would it look like to volunteer that within a community and see what happens. I haven't done it yet, but who knows? Maybe there, there's a, there's a time for everything under the sun. Yeah. No kidding.
1: Yeah. Wh- one other kind of final point on, or maybe for me, final point, but, um, on the area of kind of fitness and this, this is from the show that I did with Roxy. Um, she said that, that the way that she looks at fitness now is as a prayer. Now, I had thought about the concept of offering things up, right? Moments of high intensity, you got to get that, whatever it is, the pull-up or the squat, or you just can't, but you offer it up. And obviously that that, that makes sense and that works. I thought about that. And I thought about fasting as the way that the body prays. Like I thought, okay, this is like physical prayer is fasting. But the way that she broke it down for me, for her, was this idea that as she's like she views her literally the movement of her body the fitness like the the exercise itself the repetition the form all of that and her focus on it she makes it a prayer and i hadn't heard it put that way and it, i don't know it was really interesting to me the way that she put it i'm probably not getting it exactly right but i guess for you have you ha, how have you thought about you know, the spiritual life in, in the process of fitness, like as you're doing it, how have you sort of integrated that to the extent you have it? And frankly, I didn't for a long, long time. So there's no shame in saying you're working it out, but like, how have you thought about uh, that in the context
0: of fitness? Probably more from the meditation or introspection element, right? Especially because Mm -hmm. I work out on my own, I'm, I'm sort of lost to my thoughts. Even if I have music blaring in the gym, that honestly is just there to help with the dialing in, or so I don't hear myself breathing when I'm six reps into you know a back squat and I'm dying. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, it's it's so interesting because going back to what you we're talking about about being dialed in in those moments, especially if there's things that are um, you know some of the heavier things that might be going on in work or going on in heavier mm. life that require introspection, inquire, require, excuse me, a level of meditation and depth. It's, it's pretty incredible how, you know, again, you've got that muscle memory going on. So I have to, while I do consciously think about dropping into that squat or consciously think about form as I'm pushing that bar up on a bench press, my brain Mm. is still proactively thinking about and engaging with the other things that have been going on in my life. And so many times that'll be attached to my relationship with the Lord. Um, yeah. So, you know, I do, I do that on a, on a regular basis. No, I wouldn't say that I start every workout thinking, okay, what am I going to meditate on during this workout? But I do think it happens regularly in an organic fashion um, mm. as a way of processing when you're in this, this very deeply human activity.
1: My friend, Melody Lyons, do you know, Melody? I don't. Yeah. She's a, she, she wrote a book called the sunshine principle. Interesting. Is, it's a, uh, kind of drawn from um, Hildegard von Bingen. She's mm. she's very much about homeopathic and naturopathic right. stuff, but she was talking about this kind of soul core thing that I guess is some very, I don't know it very well, but some variation of, I think it's the rosary maybe, and a kind of workout of the day type of setup where it's literally praying through the workout. Mm. Um, now I haven't I haven't researched this enough, and I don't know if I have the presence of mind currently to be able to do that at the intensity that I want to work out, but it, it, it's sort of hinting in that direction, right, of, um, of making the movements much more consciously, you know, prayer-focused and prayer-centered. But it's just, it's like a fascinating topic, and I just think that we have like one-tenth of one percent of understanding of what could be there from, you know, of spiritual benefit
0: for us. right. Right. No, I agree with you. I've tried, uh, I've tried praying the rosary, especially during a longer row, for example. So I'll jump on the rowing machine and I'm doing a, you know, two or 3000 meter row and, and that repetition will be helpful. But honestly, I, you know, I, I will say I still have a long way to go towards sainthood. Mm. I find myself thinking more about, uh, about, wow, my legs are burning and I just got (laughs) to get through that that, that (laughs) next few (laughs) meters, uh, that, I, I'm sure Mary understands I'm still offering up, uh, offering up my decades as I go, but probably not to the level of holiness that some of these others might be talking about. Something to work on. Mm, mm. Do you work out with your wife? Uh, we do. She is uh, pregnant with our third right now. So that has stopped, awesome. but she would be in the gym with me pretty regularly. Yeah. Yeah. She's not That's a crossfitter. important too. Not a crossfitter. She's
1: fitter. not. Yeah. Now there's my wife. Yeah but there's something beautiful about
0: that as well, uh, about, you know, when you are to be married and to be able to engage in that kind of physical activity, we'll go on rosary walks as well. So, uh, for both of us being outside fitness is really important. One of the
1: things that I've been talking to my wife about, and I'm kind of, I'm going to throw this out to you. It's kind of like a developing thing, but I'd love your thoughts on it. Um, is this idea of a one flesh faith Hmm. and, um, you can approach it a variety of different ways, but the way that I kind of start the thought process is sacramentally, right? So every sacrament that we have signifies something that actually occurs, right? So you've got baptism signifies a washing a being made clean, but what's happening at an actual ontological level is someone is actually being made clean, being made purified of sin. The Eucharist symbolizes a, you know, a a meal of bread and wine with the person of Jesus Christ, but it also achieves a real encounter with the real person of Jesus Christ, right? And so along those terms, I was thinking about, well, matrimony is a sacrament. Matrimony um, symbolizes the coming together of two people to form this sort of new creation with scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, calls a uh, a, a one flesh, right? To form this one flesh. So what? If that's the symbol, what is what is happening actually, right? And my thought, because pro- I and I'm sure there's lots on this, but I just haven't come across that much of it. And so, if it's true that it signifies a one flesh, but the one flesh is actually created, then the idea of that one flesh doing things seems natural to me as a byproduct of that. So, like, the one flesh should pray. And that's different than, you know, me praying, my wife praying, like the one flesh has to pray, right? Or should pray. And the one flesh should, you know, be involved in the world, out in the community. And the one flesh should minister and the one flesh should be fit, you know? So like this whole idea of one flesh and living that one flesh faith is something that I'm kind of hitting on more recently and trying to better understand But I just haven't come across a lot, you know, too much of explanations in the area of of matrimony and and what what that one flesh actually means
0: as, you know, related to like other sacraments. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I mean, I wonder if very often um, societally, when we think about marriage, there's still this desire to retain this significant measure of individualism, right? So again, even, and then how does that play out into daily life? what you mentioned, maybe husband and wife, maybe both pray, but maybe they don't pray together. Husband and wife both work out, but they don't do it together and so on and so forth. I can speak just from in sort of real life, right? The fruits that come from my wife and I getting up at 6am every morning and praying morning prayer. It started as a Lenten practice and has now borne great fruit to the point where it's just a part of daily life for us so much so yep. that it actually has spilled over into our kids lives right so i think too when we live out that one flesh element what we end up seeing is that fruit happens in these very tangible ways in other areas of the familial life so my 6 year old will get up out of bed and because mommy and daddy are praying morning prayer he comes in and wants to join in with us so now his thing is to to actually read the intercessions during morning mm-hmm. prayer right so i think you can have these fruits The same being true, you work out together. My wife and I have noticed a fruit of just deeper connection, right? I think so often when we think about one flesh or we talk about it, especially within church settings, we tend to immediately jump to sexuality. And yes, that's an incredibly important part of, of the marital union. But at the same time, recognizing the various levels of connection. When my wife and I are in the gym together, we just laugh more. We yeah. just uh, genuinely, we just laugh more. We're both, I'm not a funny person. My wife is hilarious. She'll make fun of me while I'm in the midst of doing whatever I'm doing. And I'll throw a raz right back. And then we sit back, we laugh. We might share a little kiss and then we get back to what we're doing. I mean, there's just a beauty of the way that you're there is. brought into connection. There's this
1: uh, couple, you can find them on YouTube. Um, it's called, they're called Juice and Toya, hmm. married couple. And uh, I'm not sure if they have a, a faith background um but i've i've i've, I've kind of come across them as more like fitness influencers kind of thing but they do a workout every day and when i was getting my wife back into uh fitness in general because she'd been away for a while and then more specifically into fitness with me this was my kind of concession to her because the idea of doing you know, a skill of the day, workout of the day, you know, being there for an hour, lifting weights, moving plates like that just didn't make sense. And especially not for her as an entree. And and least of all, with me being the person showing her all that stuff, there's like it just didn't it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked for us. So I said, well, why don't we put a screen up in the gym? And that's what I did. I put a screen up, even though it's outside, it's under this like thing that keeps the rain off. And, you know, we, we have YouTube out there. So I, I play these videos and this couple, we, we started watching like a bunch of different videos and we'd work out, you know, we'd do like a 20 minute hit thing. And then I would do like a second workout with weights and that kind of thing. Um, but eventually we landed on this couple and, and they started off, they were dating and we're doing these exercises. Then they did a video saying, we're getting married. And then they got married and then they like, now they're talking about, you know, their life and everything else. And watching that journey, right, as my wife and I were kind of getting into this one flesh fitness in this case together, it's it was really special. And to like now where we, maybe not exclusively, but the majority of any of the videos we were put on are from this couple, this Juice and Toya couple. And, and it, it's because of the things you just described. It's those like little moments where you can tell they're not just doing workouts together, but there's something else happening there. And it really gives this like, there's a lot of joy in, in what they're doing with one another. And you feel that and you see that. And if you're doing it also in a couple contexts, it just works better, you know? And so I don't know. I'm learning a lot about this idea of, of, um, of, you know, one flesh and how the one flesh should operate in the world. But it makes all the sense to me that if a one flesh is created, God wants to hear from it. God wants to hear from this one flesh in all the different ways that he hears from us individually. They, they need to apply to that one flesh union as
0: well. Well, and the deeper you are in that one flesh, the more you're going to grow in joy, right? That joy in one another, that joy in what you're doing. But I also think too, just in a very simple way, right? Within within the ordinary apostolate of... Of a husband and a wife, that joy is going to be seen again by your children, by your closest friends, by other family members it's going to spill over into the extraordinary apostolate right the way that you work within your parish or your actual work professional life. people are going to see that joy that you yeah. share with that other human being um, because of these intimate moments that you're growing in in something again as simple as working out together
1: now I know also um you know, because I, I I know you're deep into this world of Catholic design thinking, and you and I riffed a little bit on this even before the show, right, when we had our call. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, we just talked about fitness for a minute and how disciplined it is, how regimented it is, how much form is important, structure, repetition, the idea of the 6 a.m. wake up. That's me for the last, you know, probably three or four years, 6 a.m. on the screws every day coffee time with my wife, prayer, fitness, like it's, it's like religious, right? Um, And yet Catholic design thinking, right? One of the things you told me was that you think process and rules are meant to be broken. (laughs) So you've got this like weird duality, right? And I'm trying to understand how personally you reconcile these ideas of the need to kind of look at existing paradigms and sort of upend them, disrupt them and also the importance of discipline, like we just described. Do you you see some tension there in those things? Absolutely. Or how does that work for you?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. There is a duality there, Um, but it's not just breaking rules for the sake of breaking rules. It's breaking rules with intentionality. First, very Mm. strategically and with a laser focus, seeing, or at least not even, not even just seeing and acting, seeing, asking questions, being curious, and then depending on the answers that are derived, then breaking a so there's still mm. a discipline that's required. If we just go out and begin to haphazardly change things, that becomes, I think, a, that becomes a real problem. You might, you might throw something away that in no way, shape, or form needed to be thrown away or break something that was, a nu- that was not in need of being broken.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like in some cases, um, it's sort of an evolution. I think about like, you know, using fitness as the example, you have the sort of the, re- the pull up that we all grew up with, a pull up, right? It's like, It's strict we don't call it a strict pull-up, but what we grew up doing was like either overhand or underhand, but it's strict. And then something like CrossFit comes along and introduces this variation of a kind of gymnastic move, which is the kipping, right? So it's like kind of swinging yourself into a pull-up. And what's the result? The result is instead of eking out three to five to seven to 10 pull-ups, you can do 20, 30, 40, 50 pull-ups and get the benefit of that repetition. So you're not like um destroying the original thing but you're developing the original thing right in in a way you're breaking the rule right but you're but you're doing it intentionally and 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 in that case coming out with a more productive outcome absolutely is that something similar
0: yeah i would say so also recognizing that if we're using that that example that analogy of the kipping pull up versus a strict pull up both of them have very specific functions. So Mm. recognizing the role that function plays within an organization, again, there are, you can do, there may be a time where you need to evolve something. You need to iterate on something because of the benefits that can come from it. But oftentimes too, again, we wouldn't have the kipping pull up if we didn't first have the strict and recognize the benefit of the strict. Yeah. What is, uh, define Catholic design thinking
1: for, for, for the audience.
0: Yeah. So, Catholic design thinking is the art and practice of observing with empathy something, a a problem that you have within an organization, be that a parish or a diocese or a nonprofit, maybe even a for-profit business, and then designing a solution based off Mm. of the feedback you've received through empathetic listening. It's an art and it's something that has to be practiced on the regular.
1: So it, it, if there was like a case study example of that, or kind of like a, you know, a version for us all to kind of understand and grapple with, break that down for me. So I have to, or just give me like a, give me a sketch of what that might look like. Make one up for me.
0: How about a real world example? I'll share, yeah. uh, you know, working sure. with a, a, this is actually a, a parish, which was unbelievable. There was a parish who uh, had been doing the same kind of faith formation with children specifically. So mm. think your elementary school kids uh, for years and years. And they were beginning to see a year over year decline as I think that's the, the, um, the reality yeah. of many parishes across the United States. Take a States. number. Right. Uh, this particular parish happens to have uh, a lot of free space, a relatively large campus, a mid sort of mid-level parish, suburban mm-hmm. parish, but happen to have a lot of space on the campus. And a pastor who was willing to say, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm very open to new ideas. Sell me on something cool and let's see what happens. So his, I worked with his team uh, and his staff had this incredible idea of what if we could mingle going back to uh, how do our bodies interact in faith, right? How, do, how does our body and our spirituality interact? Had this idea of what if we could take uh, sort of where the... Um, the, the benefits of a children's museum are? What if we could take little things from that and draw that into faith? And so Ooh. they had this idea to create almost this workshop experience. And when I say workshop, I mean like a, like a carpenter's workshop. I don't mean like, let's go workshop this topic. Uh, where a, a young person and their parent could come in and they could touch and feel things of faith. They could. Act it Ooh. out, or they could be in the midst of it, and then that would become the practice of faith. In fact, they named it after St. Nicholas. They called it St. Nick's Workshop. Nice. And so, for example, they built um, something simple when they did their prototype. They built um, imagine a, a three tiered totem with three cubes, and on each side, you know, we've seen these things before, on each side, is when it's all lined up, is an image of the Blessed Mother. So on one side, you might have Our Lady of Guadalupe, and on the other side might be Our Lady of Aparecida, and on the other side might be Our Lady of Chestahova. And you, could, you can mix and spin all of them, but at the same time, you have things that are available for a parent to be able to engage with their kids and say, hey, this one's from this place, this one's from this place, oh, wow. this is what they mean, this is how Our Lady uh, made yeah. herself, revealed herself to her children. Um, becomes this beautiful moment of faith while at the same time an opportunity for a kid to play. Uh, mm. Really incredible idea. And they're in the midst of continuing to prototype <clears throat> that now with some other ideas. It's like, um, it's also
1: very tactile, right? The, the, this idea of, uh, it's like an integrated um, catechesis in a way, right? Because you're using your whole self. It's not just theoretical, right? You get your hands into, into stuff. And I think in particular now, I, I know this goes afield from the main subject of design thinking in general, but that specific example that you just mentioned, to me, seems like it would it would have a lot of uh, traction today because there's this, you know, because our lives are so digital and our lives are so in a way kind of fleet ephemeral, you know, there's like all these just images and things that are impacting us, but we're not really grappling with them physically um, there's this there's this kind of weird undercurrent current that a lot of people can't even define, but where they long for that tactile thing, right? They long for some connection that they can actually make in the real world. And so to me, that example does a little bit of that as well.
0: Absolutely. It's not sort of this elusive topic that we're trying to hammer in on, especially yeah. when we think about trying to share the faith with kids. There are so many concepts within faith that are so deep, deep, but you can achieve a depth when you pull Mm. in images or you allow that person, right? It's about the ascent to faith. Mm. So you're allowing that young person to actually touch and feel, make sense of it with their body. That's going to make it so much more real. The other thing that's important to recognize too, is the impact that has on the community. So in the case of design thinking, design thinking doesn't start with, you know, Hey, Deacon Charlie, you have an idea. Let's go build that idea. And you do it within an echo chamber. Design thinking starts with a problem that you first go and validate as a problem to begin with. So in the case of this parish, they did hours upon hours upon hours of what we call ethnographic interviews. Ethnography, for those that don't know, is the study of culture and space and time. And so for the designer, when you're doing this kind of empathetic listening through ethnography, you're spending time very intentionally in a very disciplined way engaging in hour to 90-minute conversations with stakeholders to hear where their pain points are. So in the the case of this parish, as they're looking at children's faith formation, it's sitting down with parents and saying, hey, when you've engaged in faith with your kids, what have been their favorite times? Well, guess what those parents said? I'm sure we've all had this experience before. When are kids, when do they have a blast during a faith formation year? And oftentimes they'll say it was their favorite part. Vacation Bible Mm. school. Why? Because during vacation Bible school, it's hands-on. They're doing crafts. They're outside doing this thing. They're having a snack that's themed. They're hearing, uh, they're seeing a skit rather than a talk to describe a deep faith concept. All of these things begin to play in to where it's engaging them within their demographic in a way that's mm. going to make sense for them. That's what then led to this idea of what if we could take the elements of VBS that work really well and bring it into something that a parent could do without. We don't need staff for this. We don't need somebody up giving a skit. But what if we could have the kids and the parents become the skit? What if we could provide them the costumes and the ways to do it and then the space for them to discuss it afterwards when all of a sudden you're taking things that make faith come alive?
1: I love the idea of leaning on the, the ethnographic research too because you know, this is one of the things that is easy to see in the secular world that before you can formulate a strategy or even an, before you can get to an idea, you should have a strategy before you get to strategy, you should have data that you're building your strategy on. If you're in the secular world, you you get that right It's sort of a, a it's a process that you understand. but sometimes those things are missing in Catholic circles where it's somebody has, well, we should do this," and it's like, okay, maybe we should." and we go off chasing all of these shiny objects without actually taking a, a moment to spend the time on the research, on the data what are what what do people? need, want, what are their desires, where are the gaps that exist? And then, you know, taking a, taking that beat to then build the approach or have the idea, it makes it much more solid in its execution, right? Because it's mapping back to something that has been properly understood. And, and that that dynamic is missing a lot in, in in kind of church spheres, I would say.
0: I agree with you. I think so often, because of the way that we're trained, especially as leaders, right? I have a master's in theological studies. I've taken classes in catechesis and frameworks, and I understand how to build a framework for youth ministry or adult ministry. But the simple truth of the matter is, as leaders, we have to remember that faith happens within space and time. It happens mm-hmm. within culture, right? It's mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons that for so long... We as a church within the United States have really had to reconcile the fact that we've had a very white church and we have to look at the fact that it doesn't look that way. So faith experiences have to be in relationship with the cultures that they're experienced within. Ooh. now, are there universal norms? Of course there are. Is theology changing? Of course it's not. But the way that it's received, the people that it engages with and the way it engages, all of that has to be in line with the culture and the charism of the individual and the community that they exist within. And design thinking requires that you build solutions that do just that.
1: Mm. Now, the interesting thing to me, though, or the dependency on design thinking, it seems to me, though, is that this has to have its genesis somewhere in the idea of an empathetic leader to begin with. In other words, even the example of the parish that you said, it's like, hey, you know, the pastor's looking for something out of the box. He's open to different ideas. Like he wants it, right? There's like an aperture there that you can walk through, you know, is it, is it a dependency or can you do this stuff without that kind of buy-in? You
0: can't, if you don't have empathy, if you're not a curious person, I'll give you an example. I'll think about, um, personally, when I first stepped into ministry, And I had an incredible call on my heart. I firmly believe the Lord called me into ministry with intentionality and purpose. I had this beautiful moment in front of the Blessed Sacrament where the Lord was just so clear with me in that moment. Jason, I want you to come and serve my church in lay ecclesial ministry. I said yes, and Mm. I never looked back. Mm. I'll never forget the first time, though, that I stepped into the parish that I went to work within as a new director of youth and young adult ministry, I was standing in a room of about 75 high school students. They were all in a circle and I'll never forget. I stood in the middle of the room. I raised my hand in the air and I said, howdy, my name is Jason Duterman. I'm 110% on fire in love with Jesus Christ. And I can't wait to tell you why. And let me tell you, I told them why for months and months until I finally hit a wall and I realized I can share my witness. I can share my zeal and my enthusiasm. But if I don't first listen to who these young people are, listen to their mm. struggles, listen to what they're going through. Well, first of all, I'm going to be inauthentic. Right. And I think anyone who does any work with young people, whether you're a ministry leader or you, you actually create products within the secular space that are marketed to young people you know that young people can smell inauthenticity like a a shark smells blood in the water. Mm -hmm. And that's only gonna continue as they get older. And so that idea of listening before I speak, listening before I create, listening before I design. I mean, think of, of Jesus with the woman at the well. He sits, he asks her questions, he hears her story, and it's not until he has... He corrects her at a couple of points, right? But it's not until he has that he actually shares, if we think about the idea of the way that we do ministry today, sharing the gospel where he says, no one's here to judge you. Guess what? I don't either. Go forth and sin no more. Am I mixing two stories now that I'm thinking about it? I might be mixing. This, the sin no more is the woman who was- Caught uh, in Is the writing on the ground. Right, caught right, in right, adultery. right, But yeah. still that idea of, of listening, engaging, seeing the whole person before you oh, actually yeah. move into-
1: yeah, and I think it, it kind of ratchets up the love, the the requirement or the the importance of having people in leadership positions recognize how critical it is that they be open to sort of outside reference models and that they be open in general, right, to the holy spirit and to the way that things can be done because if you if you're closed off in that way, no matter what it is, it's going to be a lot harder to see, right? Um, Even the need to try to connect with people and find out what their journey is. If you think everything's great, or if you think the only way to fix something is X or Y, you're going to be closed off to that opportunity to, uh, you know, to to learn a different thing, to come into contact with a different way of, of, of approaching an issue or a challenge. And so it just makes that requirement of leaders to be open to these external reference models, to new ways of doing things, um, you, you know, that much more urgent in a way, because it, I find it, you know, if you're in a situation where the top of the waterfall is just kind of closed off and it's, you're not just not going to have a lot of water flowing. I mean, no matter how how much pressure is building up, it's going to be sort of an obstacle to that.
0: Right. It unlocks understanding, right? One of the things mm. that we say within our Sunday visitors will uh, the company that I work for, um, we have this this phrase that will say design thinking is divine thinking. If you, if you take on divine thinking, you begin to see the person sitting in front of you as the father sees that individual with all of their brokenness, with all of their deep needs, those spoken and unspoken. And your job is to dig into that as deeply as that individual will allow you hear their story. And then as leaders, if we do that, we unlock a measure of creative potential that we In most circumstances, don't even take the time to look for because Mm. when somebody else can communicate that need themselves, it makes it all the more real. It lightens the load on you as the designer. And then all of a sudden, you're creating something in a spirit of mutuality that's been properly discerned and validated by hearing it and then creating it. I think that's really powerful. There's something unique that happens when we invest in curiosity. Everything Absolutely. becomes validated. It's like, um, how, uh, can I, uh, real quick, yeah. are you yeah. a Ted Lasso fan?
1: Um, I've seen a couple episodes. I, I didn't get into it as much as I expected to.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll just share. There's this incredible scene in uh, Ted Lasso that some who may, who may uh, if they watch it, they'll know this scene. Ted's in a bar and he's with a, a guy who's kind of a villain character in the show. I'll, I won't say much more than that, but uh, they, there's a, a wager that happens where they're going to throw darts. And it's my mm. favorite scene in all the seasons of Ted Lasso. Uh, Ted, who, you know, again, if anyone knows the character of Ted Lasso, he comes across as this, you know, bumbling Southern guy from the United States coaching English soccer, which uh, English football, which, you know, doesn't know very much about. Uh, and he's often made fun of. And this sort of villain character as they create this wager in darts doesn't bother to ever ask Ted if he's ever played darts before. And so they get I in the midst of it. Do you know this scene? Mm. Uh, no, I don't, but I'm I can, I can see it playing out. So, and and this villain character pulls out of his jacket pocket, he says, "Oh, I, I forgot I had these." He pulls out, you know, his special his darts. darts. <laughs> uh, and he goes to throw them, and then Ted says, "As the wager has already been set and the villain character throws his first dart, Ted says, "Oh, I forgot I'm left-handed." And he throws a beautifully thrown dart, and of course, we can all imagine what happens at the end. But Ted says something interesting. He said, uh, he says, You know, I was driving one day and I see this, this quote from Walt Whitman that simply says, Be curious. And he says, mm-hmm. I, if, if only you had asked me, Have I ever played darts before? I would have told you every day, every Sunday from the age of 10 years old at a sports bar with my dad until he died when I was 16. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he goes on and he, and he wins the dart match. Oftentimes as leaders within ministry work, especially, but I also think this happens in business regularly also, we pull out our set of darts because we think we're the experts in the field and whatever it is we're doing. And yes, we are good at what we do. Mm. But iron sharpens iron and the people that we're serving, the people we've created a product for, the people we've created an experience or a service or a ministry for, can sharpen that with us in mutuality. It's about accompanying one another hand in hand. And then moving toward the goal, it's a two way street.
1: It's a you know, two no matter way how good, street. No matter how good you are, whatever gift you've been given by God, um, you know it, it it is perfected in communion, right? And uh, and we can kind of lose sight of that. I mean, all of us can, in whatever our areas of strength might might actually be. And and that's the thing with God is you know he's he's always looking for ways. Like we're all his kids, right? So when he looks down and and he's watching these exchanges. It's not ever a kind of zero sum thing where it's like, well, we're going to, th- this, this exchange is just to build up this, this guy or this gal, right? It's, it's always mutual. He's always able to do both at the same time. If we have that curiosity built in and if we kind of open ourselves, uh, ourselves to it, you reminded me with that scene of the scene from uh, Princess Bride, a <laughs> uh, famous movie where uh, the uh, Cary Elwes uh, character is this great swordsman, and he's, uh, he's you know, he's basically dueling with, uh, I forget the actor's name, uh, Manny Patenkin. He's dueling with Manny Patenkin's character, Inigo Montoya, the Spaniard swordsman. Right. And they're, like, fighting it out, and Inigo Montoya says, like, you're amazing. You're just incredible. And then he tells him halfway through the, the fight, he's like, but I have a confession to make. I'm actually not uh, left-handed. And he switches swords, and he starts battling, and, he, of course, he takes over. Carrie Elwies is about to get killed. And then he stops, and he goes, well, you know what? Neither am I. And he switches hands, and he's like, then they're both kind of battling with each other, right? It's sort of that um, the unspoken assumptions can, be, um, can, uh, can lead us to some trouble, right? Absolutely. Uh, for sure in life. How well, how well known is Catholic design thinking though? I mean, how much of this is, how much evangelization are you doing?
0: It's very much still in its infancy stages. So it's something that's been developed over the last year and nine months within a Catholic realm, right? Design thinking has been around for decades. sure.
1: Sure. Um,
0: Born out of Stanford, incredible methodology that has done great work uh, within experience and technology and food design Um, In in those specific arenas, but within the Catholic space, Mm. building something, you know, one of the things I love about design thinking and I tell people all the time is that even if you're doing that kind of work within a secular space, the amount of Christian anthropology that's so beautifully present because of its human centered nature, its human centered design requiring that empathy and the like. There are so many different spaces for discernment. And that's what mm. makes it authentically Catholic in our own practitioning of this methodology is that it has a set discipline of areas where you bring in discernment into the mix to ensure that the Holy Spirit is truly at work. Again, whether you're having a conversation with somebody or you're engaging, investing in creative potential for the right idea, or you're going into prototyping, designing out and prototyping, whatever that idea is. Uh, that the Holy Spirit's present in that whole process.
1: Well, it sounds like we got to get this stuff uh, far and wide, my friend. You have to add me to your uh, evangelical cohort to get the word out on how important this is, because I think it's something that, you know, we uh, as a church can dramatically benefit from. And frankly, you know, I, I think it can help, uh, uh, you know, hold back what is this problem that you framed around this one parish is a problem that's much greater than just that one parish, right? This is the stats on what's going on right now from a, from an adherence standpoint are pretty dismal and we need, you know, new ways of listening. We need more creativity. We need more approaches of taking things from the secular sector and baptizing and Christianizing them for the good of the kingdom. And this sounds like, you know,
0: another very worthwhile approach to doing just that. Well, we've seen a lot of fruit in the work that we've done Um, with a variety of different organizations at different levels. I mean, we've worked Mm -hmm. with parishes, we've worked with uh, pro-life nonprofit organizations, we've worked with historically black colleges and universities and community colleges within campus ministry innovation, um, and each and every time have seen great fruit, great ideas Mm -hmm. come out of it because of what happens when you just take the time to intentionally in a disciplined, strategic way, listen to the needs of others.
1: Amen. Jason, before we move on to our final segment here, wait, what I wanted to give, um, the folks a chance to get to know you outside of this show. How can they get in touch? How can they follow the work you're doing on the Catholic design thinking front with OSV, etc.? Give us some of your, uh, your logistics that way.
0: Yeah, you can check us out a couple of different places. You'll find me at uh, osvinstitute.com. And you can see some of the work that we've done over the last year and nine months and a lot of things within the OSV Institute, even beyond uh, the innovation design work that I've done. Um, and then we're in the process right now. You'll be able to see more of that on our Sunday visitor, osv.com here very soon as, as we begin to release a lot of this work to the wider public.
1: Awesome. We'll make sure to put that information in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would encourage everybody to get uh, a much deeper understanding of this concept and figure out the ways that you can bring that into whatever ministry, apostolate, organization you're involved with, uh, because only from my perspective, good things can happen as a result. So uh, thank you for sharing that with us, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right, brother, are you ready to play Wait, What? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Question number one, Jason, we're going to go back to your native land of San Antonio, Texas. All right. You are from San Antonio. I am from San Antonio. All right. So we're going back to San Antonio, Texas. And now, of course, San Antonio is clearly a city in Texas, but it's also a person. Now, the the percentage of people who live in San Antonio who know that, I'm not necessarily sure of, but... That person is St. Anthony of Padua, San Antonio in Spanish, very early Franciscan, and a friend of the great deacon St. Francis of Assisi. Um, Now, Anthony, interestingly, Jason, was born in Portugal. And his birth name, he shares with one of the valleys in Los Angeles that has given us and is renowned for the valley girl aesthetic so like you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so his name he shares with that valley what was san antonio's given birth name jason
0: i have no idea And if that's the way you're starting out this segment, my heart is now beginning to race a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Well, I always give hints, though. So it gets gets progressively easier. So, you know, so
1: the Valley Girl, right? The Valley Girl aesthetic comes from the valley, which we know as of the valley here in LA. But the valley has an actual full name. It's the blank valley. And that would give you the answer. Have you ever heard of the name of the valley where the Valley Girl aesthetic comes from?
0: I can't say that I
1: have. All right. Well, then it is, I'll give you the answer in that case. It is the San Fernando Valley. Okay. So his given name was Fernando. Fernando, specifically, Fernando Martins de Bulhoish, I guess is how you would pronounce it. But that was his given name. He was born in Lisbon. um, And then obviously, eventually, you know, he died in Italy and became a Franciscan and a bunch of other stuff that he's really well-renowned for. But Yes, that, so that is, is the correct answer. Fernando. Yeah. Second one, this it's gonna get easier because this is gonna be a uh, you know binary choice here. It's a true or false question, Jason. So All you right. got a 50-50 shot. True or false? Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, who is the head of the Pontifical Academy for Life, partnered with Microsoft and IBM, among others, to develop a document on AI that calls for AI systems to be designed following a framework of transparency inclusion responsibility and impartiality
0: is that true or false jason gosh i i want to say true but my gut says false because i feel like ai is still too new for us to have gotten a church document on but i'm gonna go with false Oh, you're so close. It's Your initial true. hunch was correct. All right. It
1: is true. All right. All yeah, right. in February 28th of 2020, the Pontifical Academy for Life, along with Microsoft, IBM, Fiat, and the Italian Ministry of Innovation, uh, created or signed a document called A Call for an AI Ethics. And this document developed this Framework that I mentioned about transparency, inclusion, responsibility, and impartiality—they've recently, I found out in my research, reaffirmed that document uh, just a couple months ago this year. So I'm going to uh, have to go read that. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. I haven't read the full document, but uh, it is true that that uh, that that happened. And you know, look, anything anything to help us sort of put some guardrails around this thing i think are going to be uh you know well suited because we're uh, we don't know what we're playing with i know we didn't talk about ai but i know that's one of your your uh your areas the ethics and like morality
0: about. that go into it that's a whole that's another hour conversation
1: that is we'll have to bring you back talk about AI. actually you know what i haven't had like a real conversation around ai on the show and i'd like to so maybe we will have to bring you back just on that it'd be fun all right jason finally Question number three, because I know in our earlier conversation, you talked, we talked a little bit about speechwriters, and I know that you had some maybe political aspirations in school, and you had this whole kind of politics vibe going, so maybe this will be the question to redeem you from defeat. Here we go. (laughs) Um, There's been a number of devout believers in American political history who were speechwriters, you know, among them, Peggy Noonan, Michael Gerson, Robert George, and... William Sapphire, an American author and journalist who served as a speechwriter for President Nixon and later for President Ronald Reagan. Sapphire often drew on his Jewish faith background in his speechwriting. Now, ironically, Jason, Sapphire is actually most remembered by a speech that he wrote that was never given. You ever heard about this story? I've never heard this story. Okay, because the, the speech is often referred to as the Sapphire speech or the Sapphire Memo. And if you haven't heard about it, you're gonna have, you're gonna struggle with this one. So I, I should maybe pivot and turn it into a true or false question. But uh, I was going to ask you if you could describe the circumstances around why that speech was never given. Just continue to totally destroy me during this
0: segment. I, I feel <laughs> great right now.
1: I don't. I think you've acquitted yourself quite well on the area of intelligence on this podcast. So you have nothing to worry about. Um, well, the interesting thing about this is that he's. It's a speech that he wrote for President Nixon. In the event that the Apollo moon landing failed. Hmm. So like, you know, if it blew up or something or they just never did it or they died in trying to do it. So he wrote this speech that apparently in, you know, political speech speech writing nerddom people know about as the Sapphire speech. And it was never given because obviously they succeeded and they didn't all die in the spacecraft. Right. But you can still find it in the archives of, uh, of the federal government. So, you know, fascinating little tidbit there.
0: I will absolutely go look up the Sapphire speech.
1: Yeah, we'll actually include that in the uh, in the show notes, too. It's very short, but, uh, you know, it's basically a prayer. You know, these guys gave their life for us to, you know, go into these new frontiers and we remember them. And it ends with the Lord's Prayer. So it's really interesting. But, you know, apparently he's famous or mostly famous for that. I know nothing about political, you know, or speech writing. so. I learned something, um, and uh, you know. Anyway, hopefully, we had some fun
0: playing the game. Anyway, oh, I, I've learned a lot, so I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to go and research a few of these things. You know, it's so interesting with with speech writing because you to be able to um, strategically plan in advance a contingency to have words that are going to uh, to have some kind of that are going to tug on the heartstrings of each person, yeah. regardless of which way something goes. Uh, is just fascinating. It's fascinating. It's
1: awesome, yeah. And those speeches, I mean, I don't know, the, the ones now just seem a little bit canned, but I remember coming up and listening to Reagan and other, it's like, and it's just like, man, you just, yeah, it got you going, you know? You 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 believed it, you know? some And some of these moments, right, well, like the Berlin Wall and, you know, Gorbachev, te- you know, tear down this wall and all this stuff, they're just moments that just hover there in, in the history, you know, timeline. Right. The chronology of man, you know? So there's definitely artistry behind them Without question Well, we'll bring you back to talk about AI and speech writing the next time Done, I will look forward to that Awesome, brother Well, listen, what a privilege to have you on the show I really appreciated the conversation Uh, I'm really, really keen on the stuff that you're doing And uh, happy to be a proponent and amplifier of it You're welcome back anytime
0: Deacon, thank you so much I assure you the privilege was very much all mine It was a real blessing to be here with you today Awesome. Well,
1: if you're listening to Jason and you're listening to me, that means it's time to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. Share this episode. We talked about a lot. There's a lot in there to learn. Jason's a pretty wise guy. So share this episode with people who can benefit from it. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.